This is uh, just a real treat. So we're going to keep talking about unmet expectations, and uh, we're going to be looking in the book of Job for this session. And uh, we'll, you know, you all know the story, but we're going to spend some time uh, dissecting that a little bit to see what we can learn from the book of Job. So, um, you know everything that's happened in our in our world these last years and you know 2020 the 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 year when the world changed and uh, you know we we went through the lockdown and then there was the election and all the everything there was and during that time it was when, it, like, all the alternate news sources all of a sudden seemed to take on, like, oh, actually, I think I'm going to start listening to this alternate news source more than the, the regular news, because all of a sudden we were starting to realize, I don't think those people are telling me the things I should know. And, you know, it was, it was different. And so one of my favorite memes uh, that came out of 2020, it was, or and actually I saw it on a t-shirt too. Um, and that it said, that moment when you realize the conspiracy nuts were right. <laughs> I just love that because um, I have had a, a couple of friends who, bless their hearts, were always the ones who, they were always listening to all the conspiracy theory people, you know, and they would come to Bible study and they'd be sharing things and everybody was like, <laughs> you know, what, what's she listening to now? And, and then all of a sudden in 2020, it was like, oh, she was right. You know? And so it was, I just loved how the Lord even allowed some of our little friends who've always been the ones who've been bringing us all those little nuggets from the alternate news sites. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, you were right. And I guess I should have been listening to you more before. <laughs> and, uh, but what we learned is even in 2020, is that was the year when conspiracy theories were found out to be not so crazy. And we also learned that our friends who are the doomsday preppers, they, they had it right. We, 2020 was the year that we found out you must have toilet paper <laughs> <laughs> stored up. And, uh, you know, we, we, we found out, and for whatever reason, I don't know, did you all experience the cream cheese mm -hmm. thing? I don't know what happened in Louisville, but all of a sudden, everybody in Louisville is like cream cheese. I mean, we don't even eat cream cheese and we couldn't find it anyway. And I was like, I guess I need to get some because everybody's good. <laughs> you know, it was the, the, what we learned in 2020 is you need to be prepared. And um, I don't know about you all, but I'm sure your pantry's kind of settled down a little bit um, after that. But there probably are still things that you are preparing for a little bit that are different now as a result of what we all went through in 2020. And even just as we're kind of washing out from that time, you know, the whole, the whole idea of being a prepper, you know, I, I love the whole doomsday prepper things and stuff like that. And we, um, I have a friend and, um, 
it was in 2020, actually, but she had planned it before everything kind of shook out that way. But she gave each of her grown kids this uh, big five-gallon bucket full of doomsday food. And, uh, you know, and she had prepared and so that everybody in the family got food for the future. And, uh, you know, so our, uh, there's that whole idea though, of being prepared for the unexpected. And that's exactly what we want to talk about in this session is just that whole idea of being prepared for the unexpected, not for our pantries, but for our hearts. Uh, what do we do? How can we be prepared so that when life is uncertain, when things happen that are different than we thought they were going to be, when we go through pressure and trial and difficulty and hardship, our hearts will be equipped to give God glory and honor through um, this time because we have prepared through the word of God. God does not intend that we just survive through hardship and difficulty and trials and afflictions. He wants us to thrive. And so we need to make sure that we are uh, preparing to accept the unexpected. And in this session, we're going to see why we need to prepare our souls from the truths that we get from God's word so that when the unexpected comes, we're not going to be derailed. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at the difference between Job and his response to the trials that came upon them and his wife's response to the trials that came upon them. And what we want to do is look at how we need to think so that we can weather the trials that come upon us that God allows and gives to us because it will give him glory in the end. So let's pray, and then we're going to jump in. Father, we do come before you again, asking for the blessing upon your word, that you would use your word mightily. Um, Lord, we thank you again for tucking nuggets of truth away in your scriptures for us to live upon, to learn from. Lord, help us to be women who are spiritually prepared because we love you. We love your word. We desire, Lord, to be more faithful in preparing our hearts so that we can honor you, that you would be put on display, and that the world would uh, see how you change lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as I said, we're going to be in Job, and uh, you know the story of Job. And it begins in verse 1 of chapter 1, his, his story, um, and we learn right off the bat about Job, who lived in the land of us, and 
his description is right off the right away. We learn he's blameless, he's upright, he's fearing God, and he turned away from evil. So, I mean, here's the guy. He's like, oh, that's exactly what we would love to have said of us at any one time in our lives. And then in the rest of the verses in the chapter, we, we see just the description of what Job's life was like. You know, he, he was this godly man. And he had a bunch of kids and, and he was well off and life was steady and he was, uh, and yet he wasn't even with all of his wealth that didn't turn his heart away from the Lord. He was focused on the Lord and he desired to shepherd his family and to help his family seek the Lord well. So he, he was a truly godly man. And then, of course, you know what happened with his story where it says in chapter one in verse six. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? And then Satan answered the Lord from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? (laughs) For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And then Satan, who is the accuser of the brethren, what does he accuse Job of? He says in verse 9, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You bless the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. And so the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. And then the rest of the chapter details what Satan did to Job. So now on the day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them and the Sabaeans attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another came. The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took the sword and, and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another came and said, your sons and your daughters were drink, uh, eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell on the young people and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And then Job arose and he tore his robe and he shaved his head and he fell to the ground and he worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. 
And what we see in that little bit is that God allowed everything to be taken away from Job. In a very short period of time, the, those servants are coming and they're, and they're escaping to tell him this bad news. It would, I mean, it would have been devastating. But his story isn't over. We, we still have chapter two to read about for his story. And so then it says in verse one, again, there came a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came from among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And then Satan answered the Lord from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. And then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job from, with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. And so we have this story of loss. We have this story for Job of the devastation, the, just everything that had changed in his life. And we see in verse 9 of chapter 2, Then Job's wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. And what we see here in, in verse 9 is where the difference between Job's response to what God is doing in his life and his wife's response, and what God is doing for her. And it's, it's the opening of this. And Job says in verse 10, And he said to his wife, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So what we see here is, again, just looking at this really important narrative about Job and his wife in this little, just in these two verses in chapter two, we see this little interchange between Job and his wife. Now, we have to look here at this, this situation here and recognize, okay, this is the only, the only time in all of scripture that Job's wife's words are recorded. Now we, she probably said lots more, <laughs> but <laughs> the only time that she's, that her words are written down and they're written it's verse nine. I mean, think about those unguarded times in your life. What if they were written down in the scriptures 
forever. It would, it would be terrible. It would just be terrible. I have such hopes for Job's wife. I, I really hope that she's in heaven and we can talk to her and find out that she really was wonderful. But, but it's not looking good. It really is not. And it's so what she says in verse nine is so terrible and so awful that it really does not bode well for what's going on in her heart. And yet there are times when we can find ourselves thinking those same things. They may not come out of our lips, but it can still be in our hearts. And what we see in verse nine about Job's wife tells us some really important things about her and how she's processing the events of her life and how she thinks about God. Most likely, there were all kinds of conversations between the two of them from the beginning of chapter one. You know, what was going on and when, when all the oxen are slain and they're taken away and, and the servants are kidnapped and, and even over the loss of every single one of their children. I mean, that's devastating. That would be, I mean, just beyond horrific for any one of us to go through. Even one of those things, she'd, she'd endured loss after loss. And not only did she lose all those, her family relationships, she'd lost her, her wealth. She'd lost her place in society. She'd lost her social standing. And now to come to her husband and then her husband's a mess and his health is, has been devastated too. And she is grief stricken. She's miserable. She's bitter. She's angry. She's probably super fearful. And Yet, even knowing that and understanding that about her, when we read verse 9, it's still shocking, isn't it? It's so shocking when she says, do you still hold fast your integrity, curse God, and die? I mean, it's just, it's dreadful how she responds and how she tries to bring Job to turn his heart against the Lord. And we have to ask, how could she say something so wicked? What does that tell us about her heart and what her expectations were about life and about how she thought God was going to deal with her and with Job? And so that brings us to our first point um, as we look at verse 10, where Job says to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. So verse point, or the first point, your expectations, when your expectations lead to foolishness. So we have to ask ourselves, what could possibly lead Job's wife to make such a terrible comment? And of course, we can, ex- 
maybe even excuse it in our, um, you know, as we're thinking about this, you know, we could say, well, you know, she just lost all her children. She lost her home, her financial security, her position in society. Her husband is sick and she's just venting. She's just letting it all out. Uh, she didn't really mean what she said. People say all kinds of things when they are hurting. And it's true, isn't it? People do say all kinds of things when they are hurting. But does that make it okay? Does excusing it, does excusing how we speak make it okay? Even if our circumstances are really hard? Job suffered all the same things that his wife did. But he did not say anything like that. He did not speak wickedly. So what's the difference between her response and his response? When we look again at verse 9, we can see even and begin to kind of understand a little bit of what maybe her expectations were about life. When she says, do you still hold fast your integrity, curse God and die? We can kind of look there and recognize, you know what? She had, she did have a number of expectations about how she thought life should be or how God should deal with her. It, we can tell that she expected God's reward for living his way. They were this godly couple. And so she expected God to deal with her in continued blessing. And so then all of a sudden for her to have this loss, it's like, no, I'm not having that. She expected that ease and comfort and a lack of trials was an indication of God's blessing. So all of a sudden, when all these trials came upon them, God was removing his blessing. So why should I trust him. Why should we follow him? If God's going to do that, I'm going to respond this way. And so we can see her expectations coming to the surface. We can tell that she thought, you know what? God may have done this and I'm, oh, I'm done. I'm done following him. I'm done trusting him. She decided when enough was enough that she got to be the one to decide what, how long she was going to trust the Lord. She expected her husband to be as angry as she was. And when he wasn't, then she tried to turn his heart to follow her into her sin. She had a number of expectations, didn't she? She expected that God would protect her from trials. And what we see is that her expectations oftentimes can show up in our lives in, in little mini ways where we can think, you know, well, life's going long. It's been great. You know, we living our little hobby lobby life, you know, where we smooth and easy. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, I need to live a Home Depot life where you go in and get the stuff because without the stuff, you're not going to survive. And all of a sudden she was, she found herself living Home Depot life, but she wanted to be 
in Hobby Lobby land. And she was not happy with it. We can do that same kind of thing, can't we? Where we have these expectations about, well, this is what I thought, you know, and, and life has been going along smoothly, easy. It's been great. And it must be because God loves me so much. But ladies, the scriptures tell us that when God loves us, he scourges us. And so that's what God did for Job and his wife. He loved them so much that he was not going to let them stay the same. And when we have expectations like Job's wife, or we see these things and, and we kind of have these expectations, well, life is going to be like this, and this is what I expected, and, and God's going to deal with me this way or whatever it is, we can have those expectations initially. But that doesn't mean we are locked into responding sinfully. We might recognize, whoa, okay, this took me by surprise. But then we begin to say, okay, so now how do I need to respond? So we're not stuck. We don't have to turn into Job's wife. We, our lot in life is not Job 2.9. We can begin to counsel ourselves just like we see Job doing to his wife in verse 10. Job may have initially had some of the same kind of expectations as his wife did, but he counseled his heart differently because he was spiritually prepared for trials. And what we see when we experience trials and difficulties and delays and the unexpected is what we see as we we get a picture of our heart. We get to look in our hearts. And it's exactly what God intends when he brings those things. They, they squeeze the yucky parts of our hearts to the surface. So then we can see, oh, I didn't know that was there. That's so yucky. And so then we can take that to the Lord and say, Lord, I didn't know I had this in, in my heart. And so I need to talk to you about this. Will you begin to change this in me? God uses unmet expectations as part of our sanctification process so that we will become more like our Savior. And Job and his wife teach us the difference between clinging to our expectations or submitting them to the Lord. Clinging to our expectations means we're going to sound and look like Job's wife. But if we submit our expectations to the Lord, then we're going to sound like Job. And so what we want to do is then ask and consider, well, how did Job's wife get to that place where she refused to trust the Lord and she rejected the Lord's goodwill for her life to the point that she just spews these, these hateful words and tries to get her husband to sin along with her. And the interchange between Job and his wife gives us some clues. So as we look at verse 10 of Job 2, we see Job's completely right response to his wife's venting. He says, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. And even, 
even when we read verse 10, because of what we've just read about her in verse 9. So here she is. She's hauling off. She's letting it all out there. And it's like, oh, honey, please just stop talking. But she just is letting it go. And so her husband rightly reproves his wife and rightly cautions her and tries to get her heart back. Rein it in, honey, rein it in. And so he says, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. And yet, even when we read that, what's her, what do you think her response is probably like, who are you to tell me what? And you can just imagine that she, I mean, she's out of control in verse nine. So when he, when the when Job says, you're speaking like one of the foolish women speaks, she probably did not respond very well to her hubby. And she might have said, what do you mean? You know, the speaking of like one of the foolish. Well, that's not that big of a deal. It's not so bad to speak foolishly. And we might think that, oh, it's not that big of a deal to speak foolishly until we look at what the scriptures have to say about speaking foolishly. Psalm 14.1 records this. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. To speak like a fool, to speak foolishly, is to say there is no God. So I can do what I want and I can say what I want and there won't be any consequences for my sins. She was speaking foolishly. She was speaking as if there is no God. And that's why she said, curse God and die. When we speak foolishly, we, when we act like there is no God, when we vent, when we spew, when we think wicked thoughts uh, in our hearts against the Lord, we are acting as if there is no God. Proverbs 14.1. Proverbs 1 7 says that to speak like a fool is to despise wisdom. To despise wisdom is to reject the counsel of the Lord through his word. And we become foolish speakers when we say things like, I know the Bible says that I shouldn't worry, but I just can't help it. And I know that we're given God's promises, um, but they don't really... They don't really do any good. When we uh, despise the wisdom of God and we will not come to God's word, then we become fools. Proverbs 1, 7 tells us. Proverbs 12, 16 says that a fool's anger is known at once. Which I love this (laughs) because we have to say, well, how does a fool's anger? How would we know that a fool is angry? Well, because they always let everybody know that they're angry. You know, it's, it's those, um, those times when you're in the doctor's office and then there's this person over there, like, don't, I've been sitting here for 15 minutes and pretty soon their, their voice gets louder. Don't they know who I am? I've been in here, you know, and they're this, I'm so angry and they start complaining and they're just spewing for, be in their impatience and anger. A fool's anger is known at once. Proverbs 14, 9 says that fools mock at sin. 
We become fools who mock at sin when we minimize our sin. It's kind of like we were talking about in the last session. When we live in unbelief, it's evil. But when we minimize it and we say, I'm just struggling, it's not that big of a deal. Then we become fools who mock at sin. And we are exactly what Proverbs 14, 9 tells us not to be. When we minimize sin, when we explain it away, um, when we, we make excuses for our sin, then we become fools. And we become women that Job is responding, he's going to reprove us as well. Don't be, speak like the foolish women speak when we minimize our sin. In chapter 1 of Job, in verse 22, we see that Job did not speak foolishly. It says in verse 22 of chapter 1, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. And in the end of verse 10 of chapter 2, it says the very same thing. Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Blaming God, when we blame God, it just says... I know what's best in this situation. <laughs> and blaming God says, you know, we're, I'm the best judge. And so I've got a plan, Lord. Um, when we blame God, what we're really saying is, Lord, you are not righteous. You are not good. You are not wise. Because if all these things have come upon me, and th- that can't be good can't be wise. It's not right. And so we begin to blame God. When we blame God, it's a backdoor way of calling God into account for his actions. How could you do this to me, Lord? The height of foolish speech is really when we begin to blame God. And Job did not blame God. He did not sin with his lips, and he did not blame God. At the heart of foolish speech is a foolish heart that rejects God's sovereignty, his wisdom, and his perfect will in ordaining and ordering the events of our lives. And that's the difference between Job and his wife. Job affirmed and humbly submitted to God's right to rule and reign as king. Job's wife rejected God's authority, and in doing so, she crossed the line and sinned against the Lord and then sought to influence Job so he would sin against God too. If Job's wife had believed in God's sovereign right to rule, then she would have bowed low and worshiped just like Job. She would have responded just like Job did. Thomas Brooks says that men that do not see God in an affliction are easily cast into a feverish fit. They will quickly be in a flame, and when their passions are up, they will begin to be saucy. (laughs) I love that. And make no bones of telling God to his face that they do well to be angry. Thomas Brooks has got it right, doesn't he? When we don't see God in the midst of our trials and afflictions, and we 
we are cast into a feverish fit. Well, what is that? That's fussing and fuming and getting anxious and fretting and worrying and venting and complaining and arguing. All of those things, when our passions are up, as Brooks says, we will be saucy. We will be that kind of like, "Mm, don't you tell me what to, and it's that little, that little stiff thing. And we've seen it in little ones. We've seen it in the little toddlers, but loveys, we do it. We get that little stiff part in us and it might not show in our bodies, but it shows in our hearts and our hearts are stiff and hard against the Lord. Thomas Brooks goes on to say, when afflictions arrest us, we shall murmur and grumble and struggle until we see that it is God that strikes. We must see him as King of kings and Lord of lords and stoop under his almighty majestic hand. This is exactly what Job did when he said in Job 23, 13 through 14, Job says, The Lord is unique and who can turn him and what his soul desires that he does for he performs what is appointed for me and many such decrees are with him. Job recognized God's complete sovereignty and his right to order all things as God desires. Job's understanding of God's power and his might and his wisdom and his holiness is what kept him from sinning with his lips so that he wouldn't blame God. It kept him from speaking foolishly against the Lord. You know, Psalm 115.3 was written later, way past the time when Job lived, but Job would have affirmed it. It says this, our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. God does whatever he pleases Because he's God. He knows what is right. He has the power to do what is right and good. And he reigns perfectly. Isaiah 46 in verses 9 and 10 wasn't written when Job was alive. But Job would have completely given his amen to its truth. It says, remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Job would have concurred with Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4.35 when Nebuchadnezzar said, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? You know, when we look at texts like Psalm 115.3 or Isaiah 46, 9 through 10 or Daniel 4.35, what we see there encapsulated for us is God's complete sovereignty, his power and his might to rule over all the events of our lives. And that can sound kind of scary if we don't remember, if we forget about the rest of his attributes. 
God's attributes are always in concert together. They all work at the same time. God is sovereign. He is powerful. He is mighty. He is holy. He is kind. He is compassionate. He is wise. He is eternal. And they all work at the same time together. God's sovereignty over our lives is always bounded by the rest of his attributes. And so when we see all these events coming upon Job, or we're looking at the events of our lives, and it's beyond what we even know what to think about, we can remember all of God's attributes. Yes, Lord, you are mighty. There's no way that I can turn these, these events away from happening to me. But you are good, and you are wise, and you have given them to me. And so we can trust the Lord for the events that unfold in our lives. Job was at rest in all the outworking of God's attributes simultaneously. He trusted in the Lord. It's like we were talking about in the last session, I am the Lord. All of that is encapsulated in that statement. And because Job was thinking on all those parts of God's character, then he was able to worship the Lord, as we see in Job 1.21. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God's sovereignty, kindness, and holiness are seen in James 1.17. I'm sure many of you have this memorized. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Now, often when we think of James 1.17, we, we think of it as referring to tangible things that God gives us. Every good thing given and every perfect gift. And, you know, we think of gifts as something tangible. It's got a bow on it. And so, you know, we think of these tangible kinds of things like, Lord, thank you for my new vacuum. You know, and, and so we're, we're so thankful for these tangible things. But the gifts, and in James 1.17, every good thing given and every perfect gift may re- refer to a tangible something, something. But more than likely, it's referring to the things that God has placed in your life. Every good thing given to you right now in your life, God has put this label on it the events, the circumstances of your life, and God has labeled it good thing. And then as you look at all these circumstances and the events of your life that are kind of hard and you don't really prefer them very much, but you know what God has labeled that perfect gift? There it is. And it's right there for you. And God tells us in James 1.17, every good thing that is given to you, and every perfect gift is from him, that he has given it, and that it comes from our Father with whom there is no darkness. 
So all his gifts are always perfect. There's no, there, there can be no fault with what is happening. And because God is perfectly sovereign over every detail in your life, then the, that, that is a gift. It's a perfect gift to you. And that's sometimes kind of hard for us to put, wrap our minds around. When we are struggling, when we've had loss, when we've had devastation, when we are experiencing hard things, when we've been betrayed, sometimes that can be hard to say, this is good. This is, how can this be good? And this is exactly where Job and his wife were. How can this be good? But when we recognize that these things come from our good God with whom there is no variation, there's no shifting shadow, there's no darkness, no fault in any of his gifts to us, then we can respond like Job. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be your name, Lord. And when we understand those truths about God's sovereignty and his wisdom and his kindness and his holiness and his justice and his mercy, then it puts a guard over our lips, doesn't it? And brings us to that place of worship. And Job got that. He understood those truths. And that's why he admonished his wife, don't speak like the foolish women. Proverbs 19.3 tells us the foolishness of man ruins his way and his heart rages against the Lord. Job's wife raged. Her heart raged against the Lord. And she's like the foolish woman of Proverbs 14.1 who tears down her own house with her hands. If she had applied Proverbs 9.6 to her heart, things would have gone much better for her. Proverbs 9, 6 says, forsake your folly and live and proceed in the way of understanding. And that brings us to our second point, which is the key to accepting what comes. And so we're going to be looking from verse 10, shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? So Job reproved his wife for speaking so rashly and foolishly. And he asked her, Um, Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? And before we get to the point where we can really (laughs) accept that good and ill from the Lord, we need to understand God's character, don't we? We need to trust him. If he's giving it and we're going to get to the place where we can say, blessed be the name of the Lord then we need to know him and we need to trust him. We need to accept and know God's goodness. One of the things I love about David is his understanding of the goodness of God in the midst of the circumstances of his life. And David, no matter how he had sinned against the Lord, he still knew that God in his character and being was completely good and completely faithful to keep his promises. God had promised that he would make David, that he would bless David and bless David's line. And so David, even just understanding that God would forgive him and that God was good in all of his ways, 
David said in Psalm 86, 5, for you, Lord, are good and you are ready to forgive and you are abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. The safest place for us to be is in the hand of the Lord. And whatever he gives us is better than anything that we could devise to bring our relief. You know, oftentimes we want to try and get out of these circumstances. Job's wife did. You know, she wanted to get out of her circumstances. She didn't like the circumstances that had come upon her and her husband. She wanted relief, but her only relief that she could come up with was to turn against the Lord. But David in Psalm 86, 5 says, Lord, you're good and you forgive and you are abundant in loving kindness. Romans 8, 28 is the counterpart to that in, in the New Testament. We know that God causes all things to work together for good. For those who love him and to those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8.28 helps us learn and accept that what God has ordained in our lives is good and that the Lord will help us trust him in it. And yet we might feel more like Job's wife than David when we face the unexpected uh, things that are happening, when we feel disappointed and discouraged and despairing. And we may not like God's plan for us. I mean, so many times I'm, I'm just like, Lord, this is really hard. Can you just take it away? I don't like it. And we can become like little four-year-olds inside. I don't like it. I don't want it. And take it away. And we respond like that if we're unwilling to accept what God gives us as good. And when we respond like a little four-year-old, even if it's just in our hearts and no one else sees it, What we're really doing in that moment in our heart of hearts is we are telling the eternal, wise, all good God, I've got a better plan for my life, and it's not this. But God knows what is best. You know, Israel is famous for doing this. They always wanted to come up with their own plan to rescue themselves. In Isaiah 30 in verses one and two, the Lord says, woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord, who execute a plan, but it's not mine. And they make an alliance, but it's not of my spirit. And when they do, they add sin to sin and they proceed down to Egypt without consulting me. And they try to take refuge in the safety of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. The Israelites came up with their own plan. They didn't seek the Lord. Psalm 33 verses 16 through 18 is another example of how we try to come up with our own plans. It says, the king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness. Psalm 33 in verses 16 and 17 that is talking about the things that we look to for rescue, for help. This, well, this is strong enough. So 
What's a king? A king is strong. He is mighty as a mighty army. A warrior as uh, can deliver by his great strength. A horse. A horse is strong. It will be. Vict- I will be victorious if I had a horse, and it will deliver me. I can be delivered from my circumstances. We we look for kings or armies. Or horses to deliver us, and we we might not have that in our lives literally. But what are we looking for? We're looking for someone who can help us, or a situation that will change. And yet, Psalm thirty three eighteen says, "The eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, and on those who hope for His loving kindness." When we look to the Lord for rescue. The book of Hebrews contains an interesting little tidbit for us and provides some insight into why receiving all things from the Lord is good for us. And in the the author of Hebrews, in the the final chapter, as he's pulling together his last thoughts for his readers, he reminds them that trying to earn God's favor through their own efforts is just not going to work. And he says in Hebrews 13, do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. And what we see in Hebrews 13:9, just tucked into the very middle of the verse, is this: it's good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace. When we trust the Lord, when we're strengthened by grace, that's, that's a picture of trusting the Lord. It's good for our hearts to trust the Lord. But we will default to all these other man-made ways of trying to trust, to, to bolster our hearts. My heart needs to be strengthened by shopping therapy. My heart needs to be strengthened by venting. My heart needs to be strengthened by working out. My heart, you know, we come up with our list of this will make my heart better. This is how I'm going to get over my bummer. This is how I'm going to quit worrying. This is, we come up with our list. But Hebrews 13, 9 says, no, it's good for your heart to be strengthened by grace. When we try to rescue ourselves, it's not going to benefit us. Hebrews 13, 9 says, our hearts will not be benefited if we try to rescue ourselves. The rescue is when we live upon the grace of God, when we go to God, when we trust in Him, our hearts are benefited. Matthew Henry said, If we receive so much good for the body, shall we not receive some food for the soul? That is, some afflictions by which we partake of God's holiness, something which by saddening our countenance makes our hearts better. You know, we're always, I don't know about you, but I mean, we think about food all the time. I mean, we, we have to really, because we're providing for others, but, but also I, I, we just think about food, don't we? And so we look forward to it and we, but we, we forget that there needs to be food for our souls. And that food for our souls is to have the same kind of nourishment that our bodies are supposed to have for, from food that we would partake of God's holiness, 
so that when our, the circumstances of life come upon us and we are sad and struggling, that we would actually be strengthened because of um, we prepared our hearts from the word of God, that our hearts would be better. And so we come to that and we, we realize, okay, I have a choice. How am I going to respond to the unwelcome, unexpected? Margaret Clarkson in her book, Grace Grows Best in Winter, said this, accepting adversity in our lives is initiated by an act of will on our part. We set ourselves to believe in the overruling goodness, providence, and sovereignty of God and refuse to turn aside no matter what may come, no matter how we may feel. Did you hear all the parts to that? Accepting adversity, the, the unmet expectations, all the stuff that's going on in our lives, it's initiated by an act of will on our part. Lord, this is from your hand. I will trust you. And we set ourselves to believe in the goodness of God. I am going to trust you, Lord, that you are good. It doesn't feel good. I don't like it. It's hurtful. It's hard. And I want it to go away. But if you have given this to me, help me to bear it. And I will not turn aside from trusting you. We accept it. We believe it. And we will not turn aside from it. It's exactly what Paul did in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, when he had the thorn in the flesh and he goes to the Lord and he asks three times, Lord, take it away. I don't like it. I don't like it. I don't like it. It's hindering my ministry. I don't, you know, can you please, Lord, just help me move forward? And the Lord told him, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And when the Lord told that to Paul, then his response was, most gladly, therefore, Lord, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. And I will be content and this is the amazing thing. When you look at 2 Corinthians 12, 10, Paul says, okay, this is your, this is your grace for me. It's so, your grace is sufficient for me to live in my circumstances that I've just asked you to take away from me, but you want me to have them. And so I'm going to be content with weakness, with insults. I'm going to be content with distress and persecution and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong for Christ's sake. And when we respond like that, when we trust the Lord, what we are doing is we are accepting from the Lord this as good. And even though it seems like it's bad, the scriptures say, no, this is good. And I can trust you, Lord. 
And this brings us to our last point, preparing your soul for the unexpected. And we read at the end of verse 10, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. This is monumental. (laughs) When we get to the end of verse 10 and we read in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Think about what he went through. Think about the pressure that was on him. Think about the sorrow. Think about how heightened the the emotions of just the grief and the sorrow and the devastation and the loss and the pain. And in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. The temptation to speak forth and to say something yucky would have been so high. We know what that's like. We've all dealt with that when that, that you can just feel the words right back here and you're trying not to say them. They're there. And yet with all that, that Job didn't sin. How is that possible? Because I want to know, don't you? I want to know how not to sin with my lips. But, uh, we, we get some clues here. In verse 10, we see Job's commitment not to sin against the Lord by speaking rashly or foolishly like his wife. The verse just says, he did not sin. And the reason he did not sin is because he recognized that there is a huge difference between temptation and giving in to sin. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 tells us, no temptation is overtaking you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. And what we see in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, is that when temptations come upon us, a temptation is simply a temptation. But at some point, when we begin to look at that temptation, when we begin to coddle that temptation, when we begin to say, I love this temptation, that's when it turns to sin for us. When the temptation to speak against God came to to Job, he deflected that temptation. And 1 Corinthians 10, 13 tells us the way that that happens when we remember God is faithful and that he will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able. Temptation may come up upon us, but it's not too much for us if we remember that the Lord has given us all we need in the word of God, that we can call upon the Lord and he will give us the grace to endure what we are going through in that trial. So Job was in his long, enduring, really hard trial, and he did not give way to sin because he rested in the faithfulness of God. We can learn to look for the way of escape. We too don't, we don't, we may be tempted to vent, but we don't have to. We may be tempted to speak rashly, but we don't have to. We may be tempted to lose our temper. We may be tempted to worry. We may be tempted to fear, but we don't have to. 
because God is faithful and he has given us what we need. He's provided the way of escape in his word with the promises of God so that we can bear what God has placed in our lives so we can trust him. We need to look for the way of escape so that we can become little Job wannabes who do not sin with our lips. Psalm 17, 3, it says, You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you find nothing because I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. And David just says, I've purposed that I will not sin with my mouth. Now, when you might hear, I have purpose with my, um, I purpose that I won't sin. You may think, whoa, well, that just kind of sounds like I'm gritting it out and I'm doing it all in my own power. There is no way that that's ever going to work. We will fall into sin as soon as we do that. But there is a commitment here. And that's what David is communicating to us in Psalm 17, 3. I have purposed in my mouth that I will not sin because I don't want to sin against the Lord. We have a resolve in our hearts that we will not sin against the Lord because we're going to lean upon the Lord Jesus Christ who went all the way to the cross and never sinned. He had temptations coming at him all the time. He was tempted in all things as we are, yet he was without sin. He knows what it feels like to have those temptations come but he didn't give way. And we can look for the way of escape also. Resisting sin and and turning away from the temptations is spirit given. And it is a skill that we can grow in. We can ask the Lord to help us think differently about sin and temptation. Just because a temptation comes at you doesn't mean you have to welcome it and say, come in, friend, let us give way and turn into this sinful little response. We we can, by the Lord's grace, turn away from those temptations and see them for what they are, living upon the promises of God. It's exactly what Joseph did when he turned away from Potiphar's wife and the temptations that she was placing in his life. And it says in Genesis 39, 8 and 9, Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? Actions always follow our thoughts. Joseph thought rightly about the Lord and about the consequences of sin, and about his allegiance to his God, and he purposed not to sin against God. How could I do this great evil and sin against God? And that's exactly what we need to have in our hearts and minds when we are tempted to sin. Lord, how can I do this great evil and sin against you? It's exactly what Job had in his mind. He would not sin against God. How could I do this great evil against you, God? You are good. 
You are wise. You know what you are doing. We gain insight into Job's commitment to remain true to God when we listen to his his wife's sneering comment in Job 2.10. Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. She brings up his integrity. Like, are you still going to be this guy that you've been your whole life? You've maintained your integrity. You've you've followed the Lord. You're still going to keep doing that. Why would you do that? Job held fast to his integrity. He he was the same man in his trials that he was before the trials. He was the same man after his trials. That's how he'd always lived. That's integrity. Integrity lives the same no matter what the circumstances are. That was Job's commitment. Will you still hold fast your integrity? And Job's answer is, yeah. I'm not going to curse God. I want to give him glory. When we are in the midst of hard things that the Lord so lovingly brings our way, when they're full of unmet expectations, let's live like we've been living. Let's hold fast our integrity. Let's give God glory in the midst of, our, of what he is giving us. Job said, in answer to Bildad's reproaches upon him in in Job 27, verses 5 and 6, Far be it from me that I would declare you right in in saying that I have sinned. Um, Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach any of my days. Job held fast to his integrity because it was how he had always lived. He had trusted the Lord. Circumstances do not make a difference if we're going to trust the Lord. Is God good? Yes. Is God good in the, in the easy times? Yes. Is God good in the hard times? Yes. Is God good in the changing times? Yes. Is God good in the unmet expectations? Yes. Can we trust him? Will we trust him? Are we going to be women who trust him all the way through until heaven? That's where we are. And that's what Job did. And we want to follow in that example. Matthew Henry said, Job, in the midst of all of his grievances, did not speak a word amiss but also preserved a good temper of mind so that though there might be some stirrings and risings in his heart, grace got the upper hand and he took care that the root of bitterness might not spring up to trouble him. That's what it is, isn't it? Grace, we mean to let grace get the upper hand in our thoughts and in our hearts so that the root of bitterness would not spring up to trouble us. When life takes a serious left turn, when we're surprised by the unexpected, when trials and sorrows mound up, when we, we have to live in the integrity of our heart before the Lord and give God glory in the same way that Job did. No, Job was committed to not sin against the Lord because the Lord is worthy 
of that kind of trust. Job was, had already had that pattern in his life. And that's how we want to be. We want to be spiritually prepared. Now, how are you living today so that no matter what comes tomorrow or this afternoon or in five more minutes, how are you going to trust the Lord? Looking at Job and his wife helps us see that our expectations can lead to foolishness in us. But it doesn't have to. We can respond like Job. We can accept good and adversity from God equally by preparing our souls for the unexpected before disappointments and trials and delays come upon us. Father, we do thank you for this time together. Thank you so much for this little picture of Job and his wife. Thank you, Lord, that you teach us through your word. Oh, Father, may we take these lessons to heart. Use your word, Lord, mightily to prepare our hearts to keep us trusting you, Lord. You are worthy to receive our trust. You you, Lord, belong all the glory that we can give. We want to give our lives for your sake, Lord. Help us to honor you by not sinning with our lips. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.